Today's program is part of a special series brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership with funding provided by ACES Aware. Together, we are working to raise awareness about the effects of adverse childhood experiences in hopes of building a healthier community and a brighter future for our children. Dr. B explains the importance of acknowledging our stressors of the past in order to thrive in the present. Plus, she shares practical tips for coping through challenging times and building greater resiliency so you and your family can enjoy healthier and more fulfilling life. Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. So, hey everybody, this is Dr. B with Delusional Optimism, and I'm so excited. We're about ready to start a new series on parenting, and I have a co-host with me now, Seth Creekmore. Hello. So he's going to be with us for a while. We don't know how long, but for now we're going to really, we're going to tap into his experience and his knowledge. He has his own podcast called Fathoms, so you might want to check that out. But it, we're going to add some engagement to this, uh, to delusional optimism where we're answering questions. So on today's episode, before we leap all the way into parenting, we're going to do a little bit of review from the previous series where, that were about ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. So Seth's going to uh, shoot some questions my way, and we're going to talk about them and answer them. Awesome. So... Hello, everyone. Um, it's so so happy to be here. So happy to be with you as well. And uh, I'm I'm curious personally. How have you like what what's sort of the what's the feedback that you feel that you've received with this this series thus far? So far, I feel like the series has gone really well. I feel like delusional optimism in the topic, especially around adverse childhood experiences, trauma, and resilience, is so relevant to people on a personal level today, and we're Mm. so starving for connection and relatedness that it's just tapping into that emotional lifeline that we Mm -hmm. all need in order to survive. We're all missing because of COVID and other things going on in our world today that um, I've had a lot of really positive feedback. So right. it's been exciting. I think people like to learn about themselves. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is and because it makes us better people, makes us have better relationships. Yeah. Has anything surfaced for you as you've recorded these episodes? You're finally putting something together that you're like, oh, I haven't thought about that before. Oh, there's so many things <laughs> <laughs> because I've been so deeply entrenched in the content mm. in a really dense way than I have, you know, really bef- ever before. And so a lot of things have surfaced for me, particularly around marginalized communities and racial and ethnic disparity, poverty. But one thing that keeps just waking me up every day is the idea of story and narrative. Mm. And these are really healing in terms of clinical therapy, Mm -hmm. you know, learning and how to talk about your story and writing and rewriting your story. So I think that that is just one of the things that has become much more concrete for me that it's so important for people to have their story and be able to own mm. it and tell it yeah, and feel it and just feel it. Like it's your story. It's who you are. Yeah. yeah and your experience is valid. And, and any level of comparing your story with the other person's story of like, who's suffering more here? Well, that's, that's not the, no. that's not the point here. No, um, and, and on sometimes I think we can use that as an avoidance tactic 
to, to not step into our story and when we when we're like well i shouldn't uh, as an excuse right. to not feel my own things Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, one more question, then we'll jump into some other questions that people have sent in. Sure. This upcoming series, what are you really excited about to to jump in there and, and explain to people about parenting? Well, this is, this is, there's 10 episodes coming up. We're targeting the audience of parents. However, it's very relevant to all audiences because... When you look at the concept of parenting, you think, I was a parent. I mean, I was parented. Maybe I am a parent. Maybe I'm going to be a parent someday. Mm -hmm. And it's important for even children to really understand the concept of parenting because they're the recipients of parenting Mm -hmm. in their childhood. So really, the audience is so much broader than this idea like, oh, I'm not a parent but even watching other people parent. So I'm very excited about the ages and stages because I think that we skim over it so quickly, especially the infancy period, and that is a critical period in life where we get the most bang for our buck and we probably invest the least resources and certainly the least attention Mm. to that period of life, and yet it impacts us across our entire lifespan and across our children's entire lifespan. So that's what I'm excited about is for people to say, oh, wow, like my babyhood, like my babyhood is so important, Mm -hmm. and it is. So embracing babyhood. So you're saying anyone who has a parent will be able to get something from this next series, yes? Anyone who has a parent or anyone who has ever been the recipient Mm. of parenting, whether it's foster parenting, you know, grandparenting, whoever that that person was, because we get parented by lots of people. Yeah. And then eventually we have to reparent ourselves. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm I'm so excited to hear these upcoming episodes for sure. (laughs) Cool. So uh, let's jump into the first question. I think... With the new administration going on, we are seemingly, hopefully, going to make some ground in uh, getting rid of this nasty thing we call COVID. So we have a question from Jason. I think a lot of us are aware that this whole COVID experience from March of last year till now and, and ongoing is, is traumatic, but I'm wondering what kind of insights you have spe- specifically for people who are working with kids right now, whether it's parents or educators or aunts and uncles or babysitters or people in church settings or other faith communities. What do we need to understand about what this is like for kids and through the lens of ACEs? Like, what can we do right now to at least at least have some effect on how this experience is going to impact the kids in our lives? Oh, that's a great question. So COVID-19, something we've never experienced before, certainly in, in our lifetime or my lifetime. And... But kids, we've always had kids. We've always mm-hmm. had children. Not, there's nothing new about that. And mm-hmm. so COVID really falls into the category of something big and really complicated and scary and difficult is happening to kids and adults. So as adults, whether we're teachers, faith leaders, parents, other people in the community who interact with with children, what's important to realize is we handle COVID the same way we handle all kinds of big things that happen in Mm. life that are hard, that are complicated, and hard to understand. We have to bring this experience down to the level of the child that we're that we love and that we want to help and support. Mm. So if it's a four-year-old, we talk about COVID with a four-year-old. Why do we wear masks? Why mm. can't we go to the park? These are because we want to protect ourselves and we want to protect others. And so we have to have conversations that are age and stage related and that's true about every difficult situation. Mm. COVID is no different. COVID is just this particular really hard thing that none of us have dealt with before. So 
it's a little trickier because we're still trying to explain it to our adult selves and we can't do that, which makes it hard. But if yeah. you explain it to a child, then it kind of helps you as an adult say, oh, mm. yeah, bad things have happened to me before and they were complicated for these reasons and I was able to handle it. I was able to find coping mechanisms and connect with people and support people and get through it. So we're going to do the same thing here with COVID. Mm -hmm. So we don't, nobody has the magic wand for, yeah. for this situation. And it's not going to be the last difficult situation we face. But for now, it, if we handle it from an ages and stages perspective, then we're building resilience because we're creating the dialogue, we're creating the storyline for the child in a way that the child can understand. Mm -hmm. It's not just like walking into a dark room and you have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. You get to have some, you know, little roadmaps and that's what the parent does. Parent or adult support person does for the child is create that roadmap so it's not so scary mm -hmm. and it's manageable. We want things to be manageable because that gives children strength. Briefly, can you just give a quick definition of ages and stages and how they relate? Sure. Ages and stages are three and four-year-olds. That's an age. That's mm -hmm. the age. At that particular stage of life, children have a really difficult time differentiating between fantasy and reality. So, for an example, we get a lot of complaints and, and conversations with parents around, oh, my children lies all the time. Well, they're really not lying. They're really actually, because they're developmentally at a stage where they believe that whatever it is that they want is real and right, <laughs> Wow. That yeah. that is a very different way of thinking than a 25-year-old who says, "I know the difference between right and wrong. I actually know the difference between truth and untruth." Mm. So 3 and 4-year-olds are are still learning that, and we have to recognize that and say, "I get that that's what you wish was true, but yeah. in reality that's not true. You really wanted a cookie. You ate the cookie." You told me you didn't eat the cookie, but mm -hmm. you did, but you believed that it was okay because that's what you wanted. That's not how it works. Lovingly walk them through the process of truth and untruth is mm -hmm. an ages and stages kind of a thing, rather than just saying, you lied, you ate the cookie, you're in trouble. Ah. And they're right. like, what do you mean? I ate the cookie I wanted to. Of course it's fine. Oh, wait, maybe they didn't like that. And mm -hmm. so... Ages yeah. and stages, different. The brain matures in a, in a particular order. Mm -hmm. We're not many, the children are not mini-me's of adults. So we have to give information at the appropriate age and stage of that development. So mm, yeah. another example is death and dying. If mm -hmm. a child loses a parent in, in infancy or early childhood, Every time they reach a new developmental stage in life, they have to reintegrate that experience of the death of that person, parent, mm. or whoever, particularly oh, a parent. Interesting. Yeah. So if you think, oh, I was an infant, now I'm four, and I'm and I'm really starting to understand, like, oh, people huh. die, and yeah. wait heaven people talk about heaven is my person up in heaven mm -hmm. then when they're 10 maybe it's good and bad like they died because i was bad or mm. you know they start to think different things then they start to grieve the experiences of missing that person at important events like when mm. you're getting into puberty and becoming you know a young adult and they don't have that parent there or turning mm -hmm turning 16 or getting married or, you know, all of these things that they see other people experiencing, but they miss. So dying is not a one and done for a child. It's a, it's a lifelong process, mm -hmm. especially if it's a parent or a very close, close relationship. Is it possible for someone who's experienced ACEs to on some level be trapped in a specific set of brain development? So maybe they're they're trapped in this is my fault 
and then they're like 49 and they're still feeling like it's their fault. Yes, absolutely. And so, okay, well, let's start with ACEs in general. ACEs are highly prevalent and very common. Mm-hmm. So most people, you know, I think the number is like 62% of the general population, the general population, not tar- not specific high-risk populations, but just the straight general population have at least one ACE. If you mm-hmm. have one ACE, the likelihood of having two is 80%. Mm. And then it progresses. So ACEs are not uncommon, but they're also trauma, which we also call ACEs, is mediated by relationships, connection, and a lot buffering supports that we have in our environment. So just because you have a lot of ACEs does not necessarily mean that you're going to be stuck at that age. However, Mm, realizing that whatever age the trauma occurred can be a sticking point in development. Mm. So if the trauma occurred in, let's say, toddlerhood, then development, we revisit our our toddlerhood in adolescence because development repeats itself. Mm-hmm. So maybe that 49-year-old could kind of get stuck in an adolescent mindset around that trauma as my fault and I can't get past it. And what that's where what we need to therapeutically revisit that developmental stage and re-record the story that's actually true, not the story that was recorded because of the trauma. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that does. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I actually feel like that leads us into another question we have okay. from Melissa. Hi, Dr. B. My name is Melissa, and I have an MSW, and I'm currently working with ACEs and the trauma and resilience involved. And my question is, does trauma have the same effect on the brain after the age of 18 as ACEs do under the age of 18 for a child? The quick response to that is no way. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. Oh, okay. Uh, So the beauty of the brain, and it's why it's so important that we really focus and keep sacred the infant period of life, that critical period of time, is because the brain is really being established, if you think of it like a highway, Mm. the first couple of years, you have to learn the environment that you're going to live in because the brain is adaptable. We have to be able to survive in our environment. So the first few years of life are setting the stage, laying the highway, the roadways, and the pathways in order to survive the environment that we're born into. It's why we're different. We're all different depending on where we were born and who we were raised by and in mm-hmm. what country and in what culture mm-hmm. because we have to survive in that. Then, once you get past the hard wiring, that important 80% of the wiring happens before the age of three. Mm. Does that mean that you know everything you need to know by three? <laughs> No way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So then by age three, now we start adding the cars to the highway. Mm. And so the cars are the experiences and they start driving on the highway. And guess what? Sometimes there's an adverse childhood experience and the cars crash. Mm. And now, okay, we have to clean that up off the highway. And how do we do that? But through therapy. I always think of the roadway system when I'm talking about this. So, if an infant experiences adversity in in babyhood, then it becomes part of the hard wiring system of the brain. And that is Mm. much more difficult to unwire or rewire or disconnect than it is if the trauma happened post hardwiring post, you know, early childhood at, I mean, I would even say 10 and over, Mm. but at 18 and over, 
think about it. We have insight. We have perspective. We have rational thinking. We have other people. We have language. We have mm-hmm. all these tools in our toolbox to help us manage a traumatic, a highly traumatic event. If that happens in babyhood, when you don't have language, you don't have support, you don't know how to get your needs met on your own and nobody's there to do it, it truly is a, a car wreck. So, yeah. so that, so no. So that's why we have to really be so graceful about this period of life birth to five i would say i mean i I say birth to three but you know i really think that we it's it's our time in history to embrace our young children and really recognize that that's the transformation of our society Next, we have a question from Juanita. My name is Juanita, and I'm a parent to five children. And I was wondering if adverse childhood experiences impact self-efficacy in adulthood. And if so, in what ways? Another great question. Okay, self-efficacy and adverse childhood experiences. In a lot of ways, the answer is the same. We Mm, learn self-efficacy as through our supportive relationships in childhood that carry us into adulthood and make us effective at whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish. Mm. So if that's interrupted in early childhood, then it's going to impact the child's ability to be effective and purposeful in whatever it is they're trying to accomplish from an education to a project of anything. Mm. And can you define quickly self-efficacy? Self-efficacy is really the ability to be purposeful about your life. So being it, it it's like self-effective. Okay. I can affect something by something that I do. Mm. I am self-affecting an event to happen. Mm. I'm making it happen. And so it it feeds into or leans into the concept of purposefulness which is a which is a resiliency buffer mm. when children have purpose in their lives that is a that's a powerful buffer against trauma because mm-hmm. it feeds into their hope streams and so when kids know that they're effective in what they do has consequences and results that are positive then they're more motivated internally to move in that direction. But if you try to hold someone in a box, think about a baby learning how to walk. Mm-hmm. I use this example. You really can't hold a baby learning how to walk back mm. from that. They're going to do it. Like right. That is self-efficacy. Now, if we put that baby in a box and really legitimately did not let that baby walk, Think how harmful, not Mm. only physically, but emotionally, spiritually, it would be for the person to not be allowed to move forward, to progress forward in their effectiveness on the world. Yeah. So, in this analogy, would the box be an ace? Like Absolutely. The box would be an ace, yes. When we don't allow children to have experiences where they are purposeful and effective Mm -hmm. and empowered in their own lives. So let's say maybe if they do anything that they are hit or told they're not, you know, they're unworthy, they're dumb, they're, Mm -hmm. you know, all the emotional kinds of abusive things that could happen that -hmm. are considered aces or they're just neglected emotionally or physically, both, that impedes somebody's effectiveness on the world, especially yeah. if you're five, you know, if you're, if you're a little, little, and you don't have a whole lot of tools, then, then that's going to impact your ability to be more effective as you grow. Mm-hmm. Remember, p- Adults in the world, all of us, 
and and parents, but they're really this one and the same. We're all right. parents to everyone's children, in my yeah. view. Yeah. So we have to scaffold life for our for our younger children. We have to help them to understand the world that they're growing up in. And we give them little stepping stones along the way. So, with someone with a with a high A score, would they have more of a propensity to believe that they don't have the ability to affect the world around them, rather the world is affecting them? The answer is maybe. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish okay. it was I wish it was super you know cut and dry and easy uh, sure, sure. like that. But humans are so dynamic, and even mm. with a fairly high A score. Depending on your resilience, positive experience, buffers that you've had, and other interventions that might have taken place. You know, people go to therapy, people have relationships that transform their lives. You know, different things happen to different people. So, a sibling set who both have high A scores, but one is older and highly protective of the other. You know, that in and of itself creates a resiliency buffer around the younger sibling. Mm. So my that's going to impact that person's ability to be effective on the world because the sibling really acted, quote-unquote, as a parent or as a... I, I say, my, my coined phrase is, that sibling gifted resilience to the younger sibling by protecting them. Wow. And okay. so if so we have there's so many little dynamic pieces that impact how people perceive an experience, mm-hmm. whether they perceive themselves as a victim or they perceive themselves as a powerful, empowered, Mm. advocate you know we we get both we get both of those i you know ideas from maybe two people who have exactly the same high a score wow okay so it's 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 very hard to just you know say oh you've got a six and your life sucks <laughs> so <laughs> but <laughs> or yeah. you have a one and it might really impact somebody's life, like a, mm. a one. But then you have somebody with a five and they think like, I had a great childhood. What do you mean? Mm. You wow. know, which is another thing that actually happens because normalcy is normalcy. If you don't realize that, you know, being beat every day and called stupid isn't normal, yeah. it doesn't feel like an adverse childhood experience until someone tells you and then you start to experience support from other adults and then maybe you go down that pathway and you mm-hmm. grow up and you like say i'm going to be like them not that wow so yeah. see how it it really is tricky but the more we are consciously aware of these things and can have dialogues about them then we start to like unwind the twine <laughs> Right. So we've talked a lot about understanding ACEs and understanding um, our own experiences in our in our childhood and our siblings and those around us. What would you, this is a question from Courtney Ropp. She says, what is the best way that people who are in support roles uh, can help children who are currently experiencing ACEs? Wow. I, w- I, I wish I had all the answers to that question. <laughs> I think we all yeah. do because... Yeah. We know that children are suffering. We know that children have always suffered. Mm -hmm. And we have not gotten to a place in our society where that is not a thing. So, but I would say is one relationship with a child is the most powerful Mm. experience in terms of transforming somebody's life. So, it's more powerful to be the one person for one person than it is to be, you know, to try to spread yourself too thin for kind of a general audience, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. So, always be the one when you can 
to gift resilience to somebody else. And what that means is you give them the support they need when they need it, if you can. Yeah. And that will always come back. People will come back and say, man, when Courtney did this for me, and you, mm-hmm. Courtney probably won't even remember. Yeah. But it was this little tiny thing that kept them going and pushed them forward. Mm. So, and then, then we also, ha- that's the bottom part, you know, that's the bottom rung. We just are helping people one on one. But then we also have to work on the systems and we have to be brave and courageous about speaking truth to power around systemic racism, organizational. Mm-hmm systems that don't work for children and families and communities we have to do a better job at making sure that not that everyone matters and that we're including everyone in our community yeah and and all these things that actually make our entire society a better place so mm-hmm. it's working on both ends you got to work on the one-on-one level and do the best you can with what you've got. And I'll tell yeah. you, we don't have a lot. Mm. Um, we don't have enough. The truth is that we don't have enough. There are half the counties in the entire United States of America do not have a mental health provider working in them. What? <laughs> yeah. And then oh they only take they only take private insurance or cash. And mm. so the majority of Medicare and Medicaid eligible people mm-hmm. have no access at all yeah. to a psychiatrist or somebody who can provide, you know, high-level mental health services. Or not even right. high-level, just necessary. Right. So when we just don't have it. It's like saying, you know, can I have a cup of water? I just need one cup of water. Well, sorry, no, because we only have a dropper full. Mm. And it has to yeah. serve everybody. Well, yeah. do we give the one drop to one person? Or do we spread that one drop into evaporative air? Right. Neither answer wow. is good. It's a terrible, yeah. it's a terrible answer. The answer is, we have a lot of work to do, and we first have to fill the cup. Perfect example is COVID, right? There's a, there's a personal responsibility taking care of my own self, my own needs, and the, and the direct relations of those around me. But then it's also thinking about the community, the, the systems, the, the larger community as a whole. And I may not be specifically worried about my own health, if I were to get, oh, well, I did get COVID, but um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was fine. Um, okay. But, but, but thinking beyond that into the systems, into other people, and it's such a, it feels like they're opposed from each other. But I think we have to sit in that middle so often because we have to hold that tension between the personal and the collective or right. else we start missing things and we start folding in on ourselves because um, right. it's not sustainable. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. So along those lines, uh, we have a question from George, who is a pediatrician. Hello, Dr. B. This is George Lopez. I'm a pediatrician who uses the ACEs Aware screening tool on my patients. It has been an enlightening journey seeing how many kids actually do have a significant amount of ACE scores. But what I've discovered is that even with an ACE of one or two, some of the patients end up with significant amount of anxiety or depression. And then the biggest problem I face right now is trying to get them the care that they need to deal with this anxiety and depression. At times I have to see them weekly, every week, so that I can get them to, to keep them intact until I can get them to a psychiatrist. It is probably the most difficult thing that I'm having to deal with. I'll be honest, the first time I listened to that question, I thought he said he was George Lucas. I'm like, well, this is fascinating. Okay. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Okay, so to 
Dr. Lopez's question as a pediatrician, wow, this is this is the honest truth that pediatricians who are really, in, especially in California, being, invi- being invited and encouraged to start using the ACE screening in their practices, particularly with uh, populations served by Medi-Cal, are are using the ACE screening tool to come up with a score for a child or even an adult for that matter. Uh, but there aren't the resources in the community to then provide services. And we just talked about mm. the cup example. You know, we need the cup full in order to disperse the water. And if we only have a few drops, then it it runs short. So one of the things that Dr. Lopez is facing is that he is now aware of the emotional impact of life on children's physical health. And this is very common in the medical community. It's not uncommon to recognize that in the clinical or psychological community, mental health community. However, now they're coming together because of this ACEs study that we know that the emotional life of people impact the physical health and lifespan of people. Mm. But what we haven't built yet and we're in the process of building is the infrastructure to support these children and families so they have better integrated emotional and physical health across Mm. their lifespan. And I, again, don't have the answer because we don't have enough services. So we have to find innovative ways to provide services to families and supports to families without having, you know, wherever we're at. Sort of the birth of this podcast is part of that, is there's a lot of general information that people can learn and know and just be comforted by Mm -hmm. that helps them then to manage going forward with their children. So that's what I hope this series does is kind of gives people a baseline because a lot of times people say, well, nobody ever teaches you how to be a parent. Well, Mm -hmm. we're going to give you some great information in the next series about, (laughs) you know, how to how to handle this situation or maybe that situation. Yeah. So. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, there's this concept out there of like good enough therapy or good enough parenting or something like that. So we, we know systems change very slowly. Um, (laughs) So we can be grieved and we can be sad and we can be angry and we can have all the emotions about how the system is not how it should be at all. And we can use that anger as a, animating force to do something about it. But for people listening, and we've talked a little bit about that bottom rung of just being the one-on-one person for a child or, or a, I mean, I guess on some level, even another adult sure. that is yeah. struggling with, with such things. So what, what is good enough parenting, whether that's parenting yourself, parenting a child that is yours or not? What is good? What is good enough? So surprisingly, but delusionally optimistically. (laughs) (laughs) See what you did there. There you go. This is, this is, there's a guy named Winnicott and he's kind of a old guy, father of infant mental health. And he actually coined the phrase good enough parent or good enough mother Mm. because people, you know, we think in order for people to grow up to be amazing humans that they need this awesome parenting and they need two parents and they need this and they need that. And the truth is, nope, they need one good enough parent. What does that mean? It means a loving, connected, listening parent to walk a baby in through babyhood, into early childhood, into middle childhood, into adolescence, into adulthood, who is that scaffolding supportive person. You don't have to be perfect. We all mess up as parents. It, mm. you know, we mess up as parents. I can tell you from personal experience, I have three adult children. So, you know, there have been times I messed up. The best thing you can do when you mess up as a parent is just say, hey, I messed up. I'm sorry. Like, that was really a terrible response. And 
then talk to your child about that. We don't even have to be... There can be negative consequences for a a myriad of things, obviously. Mm -hmm. But when you have somebody with you who loves you like a like nobody else loves you mm-hmm. then that mediates a whole lot of trauma it's 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 fascinating and inspiring to think how far you know a child can go with so little mm. but it is a loving relationship Oof, there's so many different directions we can go off on on that one. That's 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 <laughs> yeah. a very, very deep well. Yeah. But I'd love to move on to another uh, specific question from Lee Fields. In regard to like Basil van der Kolk's work, The Body Keeps the Score, and Peter Levine's work on trauma, and to a lesser degree, Dan Siegel's work on neurobiology, could you talk about specific somatic practices or work that can help metabolize stored body trauma and cellular trauma? And is that an effective tool in working with remediating ACEs? Thank you. Okay. Yes. That's a, that's a big question. I love it though. Yeah. Yes. Bessel van der Kolk's work, The Body Keeps the Score and Levine's work and Siegel's work. And there's, there's a myriad of other trauma folks in the, in the world who are really figuring out how to undo the trauma to some degree on a somatic body level. Now, Mm. I, from an infant mental health perspective, which is my training and, you know, depth psychology, the way I like to explain it is the things that get wired into the brain, like on a pre-verbal level, So if you have an experience before you have language, then the only way your body has to record that experience is somatically, in the body. It's a Mm -hmm. feeling, not a word. So if you have terror before you know the word terror, it becomes a feeling in your body. And so mm-hmm. what the body keeps score and Bessel van der Kolk and his colleagues and others are work on is accessing those feelings and releasing them rather than letting them, you know, it, it's sort of like drive the train. In a therapeutic sense, the way I also think about it is depth psychology, when we allow for our brain to settle into mindfulness, hypnosis, you know, the unconscious space where we can reaffirm what we know rather than what we experienced, Mm. then we're telling ourselves and teaching ourselves something different. And this is work that goes on for people's whole lives. Like, we have to continually do this. If you think about affirmations, Mm -hmm. these are powerful ways to rewire negative thinking. However, if if it only happens at a conscious, you know, rational thinking level, you have to keep doing it. You have to let that material, that content, that new information really sink into the cellular body unconscious awareness level Mm -hmm. of your being in order for it to then again become part of you. For those people that are like, this sounds a bit woo woo. Uh, what's what, what, (laughs) how would you rebuttal that? Cause it's not, it's right. Yeah. I would say it on its most simple in a, in a very simple example of this with an infant who experiences a terrifying event pre-verbally, so before they have language, they witness violence between their parents. Like maybe, mm-hmm. maybe their mother is murdered in front of them, right? Mm-hmm. That would be terrifying for us as a <laughs> period. But now yeah. let's have that experience as a baby and everybody's like, oh, it's a baby. The baby didn't know. The baby doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, that's not a thing. Okay, well, guess what? That baby actually has 
taken that experience and had horrific fear, trauma, terror, no words, it becomes part of who they are and they can't explain it. Mm -hmm. If we don't then support that baby in talking through what they experienced and why that feeling feels so, so, so scary, they can Mm -hmm. never understand it and release it as oh my gosh, that's what that was. Now I'm letting it go. Doesn't mean I don't still have big feelings about my mo- watching my mom get murdered, but mm-hmm. I have the capacity to understand it and integrate it into my rational mind and who I am as a person. It becomes part of my story rather than it become it is who I am. Right. And so I get to tell the story rather than the story tells me. That 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 is a line right there. Okay. Tweet that. Jeez. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think and and a lot of what I talk on with my podcast, which is generally around the Enneagram and and other things along those lines. Some people out there are probably somewhat familiar with the Enneagram, but we we talk about head intelligence, heart intelligence, and body or gut intelligence. And what, what the majority of Western society, we just assume everything that is real is in our head. Yep. And, and we, we're slowly starting to open up to the possibility that hmm, maybe emotions are important too. Yeah. <laughs> maybe those have some level of information to give us. And I think that next frontier is getting into that body sense. Yep. And, right. and it's, so, it's so much more difficult to talk about that because it just it doesn't it's hard to explain because it is it's just a sensation and we're used to having cognitive abilities to shape it and and inform it and write it out but it's like my chest is burning what does that mean i don't there's no no one's telling me what that means and i think that is our next the next thing is to start really diving into the body and allowing the body to start teaching us when we've relied so heavily on the brain for the last hundreds of years. Yeah. Well, and they work in, they work in concert. I mean, they are best friends, the body and the mind. They, they can't do anything without each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the thing that you said that makes so much sense is yeah, we're we're not pulling the information from our cognitive mind, so it right. feels like it's not relevant. But the truth is now, and one of the things about this landmark ACES study and Van der Kolk's work and other people's work around trauma is that it's becoming more mainstream knowledge and scientifically based. We actually have right. the research now. We know that, guess that, that if you have adversity in your childhood, it's going to impact your physical health. You mm-hmm. could potentially die 20 years sooner if you have a high A score that goes unrecognized, untreated, unaddressed in any way. We know that it impacts diabetes. We know that it impacts weight, blood pressure, Mm. cancer, all the top nine or 10 leading causes of death are correlated to adverse childhood experiences. So when we have Mm. that kind of information that scientifically links our emotional experiences to Mm. our physical health, then we pretty much can't ignore it anymore. We have to start thinking about it, even if it's at the most basic level as money, healthcare costs. Right. Yeah. I mean, forget forget the reasons that I want to talk about it, which is just quality (laughs) of life for humans in our in our society. Just those things. Yeah. (laughs) But if you just want to talk math and and money, let's just talk that. It's billions Mm -hmm. and billions of dollars probably pushing a trillion dollars. Yeah. And that's a year. We're not even talking, you mm. know, in a generation. We're talking a year. <laughs> so Yeah. That's a lot of money. So if that's the motivator, I don't really care what the motivator is for anybody, mm. but that's a really powerful thing to connect that hey, 
If we get our handle over here, we're going to save a boatload of money over here. And guess what? Then we can give that money to really creative, smart, interesting people. They can start businesses and our communities are thriving. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life print. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Delusional Optimism brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership. We hope you're encouraged by Dr. B's message and find her tips helpful for managing life stressors and building a more resilient self. For more episodes in this special series, please visit St. Agnes Medical Center's website at www.samc.com. This episode is produced and published by the editing team at TruthWork Media. TruthWork Media is a full-fledged podcasting and social media agency located in South Bend, Indiana with clients all around the world. For more information, visit them at truthworkmedia.com. These materials and all discussions of these materials are for educational purposes only and do not constitute medical or mental health advice. The presenter is not a licensed mental health or medical service provider. If you need medical or mental health care or advice, you should contact your doctor or therapist, or you can contact your insurance company for a referral. This show and all of its contents are copyright 2020 Dr. B. Leave a Life Print. Reproduction or use requires written consent of Dr. Kristen Beasley.